Hello, this is Daniel Vega with Behind the Story. Yesterday I did an episode of Behind the Story where I was talking about Monday Night Raw. And it was the build up to WrestleMania 12. No, 13. And it's really, when I think about it, looking back at that, it's really interesting. I may have mentioned this yesterday on the podcast episode that I did, where the episode I was talking about last yesterday was most likely the episode that Steve Austin was mentioning when he inducted Bret Hart in the Hall of Fame back at WrestleMania 22 back in 2006. He said that because Bret Hart was the last inductee and he like he really has respect for the fans to the point that he tries his hardest to be as short as he can be and he was that way with his own speech and he was that way when he inducted Bret Hart. He said that when he found out that he was going to face Bret Hart in a submission match and at first it was called an old bard match but the time went on, it morphed into a, uh, changed from a, from a Noah's Bar match to a submission match. And he said that when that happened, it got him so mad because he had a bad leg, bad knee. And when you watch when he cost Bret Hart the WA title, you could visibly see him limping when he walked away from the ring. So, yeah, I'd say that was about the same time. And at this point in time, if he had a knee brace, it was only on one knee. So, um, just shows how the internet changes everything. Changed everything. Because today, if somebody has a significant injury of any kind, we know about it almost right away because of the internet. Whereas, the only way we knew about it, in, at least I did in those days, was because they put it on TV that they were injured. So, I said in that video that, in that episode, that I would start talking about people's careers. Um, I realized I was just looking on YouTube and I realized how I got to make this really um, different. Like, there, um, I decided to do um, bios for, but. 
like talking about people's wrestling careers well decided to do one specifically for the Attitude Era Superstars um, based on WWF and Triple H was one of the first actually the very first superstar to have only um, been in WCW of being in either WCW or the WWF and uh, there were a few stars in both companies that were in a form of the territory themselves. Shawn Michaels started in Mid-South, then he went through different territories till he got to the WWF. And he was in Continental Wrestling once with um, Robert Fuller and his brother. Um, but he made his biggest success, made his biggest mark in uh, AWA with Marty Jannetty. They're called the Rockers in AWA before they were even in WWF. So I just want to give an example of how different Triple H's story is than a lot of the other stars in the Attitude Era um, well, just in the Attitude Era period. Out of both companies uh, Sting started in Mid-South himself. Then he went from Mid-South it was so brand new when he was in Mid-South that the territories were slowly dying so and he went when he started mid-south and, and when he was just starting to get his foot um in the door as an individual was when wc was when wcw bought out actually it was the crockets were still in business bought out uwf which was mid-south and they changed their name to sound closer to being like Vince McMahon's company. They called themselves the UWF, Universal Wrestling Federation. And then, after, we, after going through that name change and everything, he overextended to the point, Bill Watts did, that... They were in a depressed economy in all of the United States, I believe, at that time, because they ran shows in uh, in Louisiana, and then of course when you add the other three states or other four states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, and one more, I'm not really sure of. So. This is why they, and because of oil crisis on top of that, now no, Mid-South didn't go out of business solely because of the uh, oil crisis, but it didn't, ha but it did, it did ruin them. So, I'm saying that because uh, I heard Bruce Pritchard say that 
Bill Watts blamed it solely on the oil crisis. But I think even Bill Watts would tell you that it's, that it's not solely responsible, but it was the largest reason why. And so that is why I'm starting with Triple H is because he was the first person in the WWF and in WCW that, um, as an American that is, that started his career right after the territories officially were closed. So there was no more territories, it was just literally only WCW and WWF. Any other company were used as training schools. Because that's how Triple H got his start. Triple H, whose real name is Paul Michael Levesque, I was going to bring up his, uh, his story here on the WWE Network. Because that's most important, um, what's the, that is the, not most important, but it's the best way to show um, or to explain where his, um, where his career, how his career started. Before he was Hunter Helmsley, he was Jean Polivic in WCW. But when he was starting out, And I have trouble. Hate when I have trouble with my words. When he started out, I think he was, was using his. He was flat out just Paul Levesque, where nobody really knew anything about him, and within six months. He said he had gotten a tryout match, which I think, they, yeah, they still do this today. And he, uh, the first person to notice him is um, how do you say that? was Arn Anderson, and he said, let me state that. <clears throat> the first person to talk to him was Arn Anderson, and Arn Anderson told him how great of a job he did, and it did such a good job, he told him, good job, kid, it looks like you're gonna get a job. And, but a lot of people may not know about Triple H, because they may not have seen his story here on the WWE Network, or on DVD, is that when he started, I think he was offered $2 million for two years, and he asked him if they could go down to one year, because he didn't want, um, 
he said that he didn't know if he had what it took to make it in the business as a wrestler. And he didn't, it wasn't going to take Bischoff two years to figure out if he had anything to offer the business. And he didn't want Bischoff to have to pay him if he didn't see anything in him. So that was smart on his part. Triple H had actually in WCW, um, he started out, I forgot this, until I looked at this picture right here. He stood before he was Jean-Paul Levesque, he was terrorizing. And one day, Ric Flair, you know, he gets flack for all the bad choices he made when he was booking WCW. But the one, one of the best choice, one of the best decisions he made as a booker in WCW was he looked, he said to Triple H or Paul, hey kid, I got an idea for you. Your name is Levesque, right? And he said, that's Levesque. And he said, I'm going to call you Jean-Paul Levesque. And this, what, what he did that was such a good decision was because the way it was when he started was everything about Ric Flair on TV is from his own imagination is from his own decisions about how he wanted to dress and how he wanted to act. So he said to Triple H, you figure that out on your own. And everything from how he carried himself to how he acted on TV, because he knew he was going to be a heel with this gimmick. So he said to the cameraman, these things were things that I hate. I would hate to see as a fan. So I knew that this would make me hated. Hated because the fa because if I hate it as a fan for somebody else, fans are most likely gonna hate me for it too. And he's probably been about a year in WCW actually two years and in 1993 I believe yeah 1993 he and Lord Steven Regal became a tag team and um Okay, I don't know what happened. I guess I forgot. Um, not, not so much how it started, but um, how long it took. Um, and I brought 
how long it took in this story for them to go from Paul Levesque to kind of ourselves in the story. And yeah, I do like playing the audio because it makes it easier on me because of all the things I've forgotten or all the things I don't really remember seeing. She's talking right here, the same thing I already said. I played it because I knew. Let me say that again because I'm not sure if I said that. Um, without mumbling. So let me say that again. He's about to say what I just said already. And I played this again because I knew I was missing something. 56,000, okay. Let's do a year. 
WCW in 
Um, you did not enter wrestling late, but he had to work twice. A, he had to work as hard as DDP did when DDP started, because of what Regal said about him is that his footwork was not good. In fact, I think he, I think his exact words were it was horrible. I think that's what he said earlier in the interview. And he said that he was, just by how he carried himself and acted, he was going to be special. As a matter of fact, when he, one of the first times he hit the pedigree, and I don't even know who this guy was, he was just a jobber. But I don't know who this guy was that was jobbing to him, but it was just, it was just not smooth. The way he um, delivered the pedigree was not smooth. And by the way, Terry Taylor, we mentioned as being the most instrumental person in his training at that point, also was the one who was instrumental in him using the pedigree as a finisher. And his... Um, Pedigree, the way he set it up for Triple H, the name, not really the name, because I think that's a WWF name, but uh, whatever he called it in WCW, the setup for it, everything was thought of by Terry Taylor. And then when he ended up becoming Hunter S. Helmsley later on, he actually, he went through about two, TV shows, two D TV tapings, excuse me, a Monday Night Raw, and he said that, um, talking about Triple H, that is, he said that, not he said, but he used the Diamond Cutter. And Diamond Dallas Page was a friend of his. So I so called him up and he said, It's not that big of a deal to me, but a lot of people in the back are telling me that they think if you use the Diamond Cutter that it's going to ruin it for me. So please stop using it as a favor to me. And that's when he started using the pedigree again this interesting uh, stories like that made doing this so much fun Stay, and I 
I'm gonna start. I'm gonna stop right here, and uh, um, cause I don't. I gotta be honest. I think. Gotta be honest. I think I should stop right here, and just do a separate episode about a show. So I just wanted to start this by talking about how he started, how he became. Paul, how he became Hunter Soundsley. Thank you and goodbye. Hello. This is Daniel Bayon with Behind the Story. I'm sorry that I didn't talk right away after saying that line, after saying that what my name is, that I'm having trouble. My allergies, like I usually do. I'm gonna try to see if I need to take take an inhaler treatment. Okay. Hold on, I'll be right back. something different and I really was not sure when I thought about this this morning I wasn't sure what's really talked about should I continue talking about 
Um, the la last wrestling show I spoke about was that I was WWE Raw. In 1997, the night after their pay-per-view in your house, Final Four, and that was an interesting show because they had They had given Je um, Psycho Sid Vicious one more shot at the, at the WWF Heavyweight title. And many people that saw this time in wrestling know why I call it the WWF Heavyweight title. To me, the Heavyweight title was the gold title in WCW. Or the NWA title. And in those days, you only heard of WCW and um, WWF. So, if we're going to talk about WCW, let's not talk about... Um, if we're going to talk about WA title, let's not talk so much... Let's not refer to the heavyweight weight title unless we're talking about the gold title. So, the WWF Heavyweight title was... on the line in the last time I spoke about an episode. And what was amazing was three different times wanted to start the match and Steve Austin had to interrupt because of his personal problems with Brad Hart and because he could find a way you may wake up before if he can't wake up yes I'm okay I'm okay so he found his way after the match finally got underway he finally found a way after Brad Hart finally put the sharpshooter on Steve Austin, on a um, Psycho Sid, he came out while every, while, um, while Bret Hart was trying to keep the title, he had, see, he had Bret with the steel chair and he, he sneaks down so the referee won't see him. And he get then Bret gets hit with the uh, with the heavyweight with the power bomb I think by Psycho Sid and that's how Psycho Sid um, becomes heavyweight champion. And I'm and I thought honestly thought I had seen the raw after that. I started to see it and. So what I'll do is I'll just do the set 
I'll just do two separate um, episodes. One on one on the episode, one on the raw episode the night after Final Four, and one episode about um, about the career of um, I believe I want to talk about um, Triple H. I think he was one of the most, he was one of the first guys to, I'm trying to think of how you really say it the right way, he was one of the first guys in, in wrestling at the time to, to have a start in WCW and then go to the WWF. So that's why I'm going to talk about him. But first, talk about um, Monday Night Raw. Now, the the night after Psycho Sid won the WWE title, um, the show started off right here where the new Blackjacks debuted, Blackjack Wyndham and Blackjack Bradshaw, where they went against the Godwins who had been around for years. So, the only reason I would expect the uh, new Blackjacks to win this match, which I don't think they did, which I think they might have. The reason I had expected this is because they were slowly getting to the point that Godwin's where they were better off breaking up because they were slowly disintegrating anyway. And it was starting, it was starting to get to where it would have been better to have them apart than together. Now the how they acted with each other was okay, but they were just were losing their momentum, their uh I guess relevancy is a good way of saying it. Um not just being relevant but it seemed that it was they were losing their ability to draw the crowd like they used to. Who I think that was Blackjack Bradshaw made the cover right there. That was a smart offense by uh, the new Blackjacks. Henry Godwin had a sleeper hold on uh, Blackjack Bradshaw. And when he could see that Blackjack Wyndham... No, on Blackjack Wyndham. Blackjack Bradshaw got in the ring behind the referee's back. And 
This guy was running towards them so he could clothesline uh, Henry Godwin. And I think this might have been the first time he hit this clothesline. And uh, Black Jack Bradshaw, let, he actually was able to get out of the sleeper hold and jump down. And Wyndham gets, no, Henry Godwin gets clotheslined and here comes Bradshaw to make the, not Bradshaw, Wyndham to make the cover. One, two, puts on the rope and the referee goes, goes for the, makes the three count. And Blackjack Bradshaw caught the leg so he wouldn't, so he wouldn't notice his mistake. Then they go with the big time argument, the referees and one of the Godwins. What's interesting was the referee that came out to let the sanctioned referee know the mistake he made. What's interesting is that this this referee that came out to let the other referee know he made a mistake became a WCW referee about two years after this, I believe. Billy Silverman. type tag team and a passe type characters on top of that this time they they didn't they weren't splitting up like I thought they just got upset and they threw the emptied the bucket of slop on the referee mm -hmm. so ECW invades Rob Paul Heyman you can see this picture um, on the on the screen, and I don't know who these um, I don't know who these two guys are, but turned out to be a tag team from ECW. Then Stevie Richards and Little Guido, which went to WWF in the um. I forgot what you called him. Oh yeah. He became Nunzio later on during the um forgot we I believe we called that time uh Ruthless Aggression era. So he goes against C B Richards right here. Sonny and Marlena. Have a, a arm wrestling match.
Okay. I always liked when they would show the outside where they were at. Today, I don't think they show any of that. So, wherever they were at, um, this was actually, how you like that? It's been a year of being on around the Manhattan Center before they started traveling, and right here in 97, they're back in Manhattan Center for this episode. Stevie Richards beat... Little Guido with, uh, so, about, this was when the Blue World Order probably was starting, so he used a super kick, I called it the Stevie kick. There was the Blue Meanie with him, and, uh, whoever the third member of that was. And they had explained on the Faction DVD that the reason they didn't get in trouble with uh, with Eric Bischoff for doing um, the Blue World Order is because there's no gimmick infringement when you when you impersonate when you when you are doing what we call a um, A, uh, I really am struggling with what you call, thought words you use to call this impersonate. Impersonate somebody, there's no gimmick infringement because you're not infringing on anything. beat uh, Sunny and then after having powder in her eyes she has to get um, messed with by uh, Savio Vega which leads to a match between the two of them I think uh, Savio might have lost to Goldust and um they talk about um, some of the best moments that Jerry Lawler has had in the WWF. 
knows how Eos Vega got disqualified against Goldust with help from his Nation of Domination brother, Crush. With, uh, let's see who else was there. I believe it was uh, Clarence Mason, WWF lawyer slash um, manager, and one half of the tag team PG-13 was outside also. Gail Perez came out to help Goldust and dis really disappointed in Savio uh, Vega joining on Nation of Domination. Then Ken Shamrock, um, his first appearance in the WWF, was he was sitting at ringside with his wife, who's kind of sick, so she didn't talk, so she let him talk. And this was when the Ultimate Fighting Championship UFC was started, and he was the heavyweight champion, so they interviewed him, and he said that for Jerry Lawler to say that they were good friends, that he had to be lying because he said he didn't know him. By the way, speaking of knowing people in that business, I don't know who trained him to be professional wrestling, but before he was in UFC, he had been in wrestling uh, long enough to where he actually knows Colonel Parker, alias Robert Fuller. So I think that's interesting to, to know that fact. And when they're finished with their segment, Taz went against my, Mikey Whitbrick. Headbangers went against the Legion of Doom. Taz won with probably the Taz mission. As I recall this, the Headbangers going against uh, the Road Warriors. As I recall, I think they, uh, they didn't like following the rules, so they ended up losing by their, by, by their own, uh, ended up losing because the Road Warriors, even though they followed the rules, they quote on screen rules, there are no rules when you face the Road Warriors. They're street fighters. Hmm, that was a double count out, huh? Okay. Well, I better attempt to make a statement than to hit the finisher. And leave with, uh, leave 
without getting, without limping. A better way to do that. Better way to make a statement than to do that. So next is the first time they show the Shawn, the famous Shawn Michaels music video, Tell Me a Lie. And Tommy Dreamer goes against Devon Dudley. The reason I didn't, the reason I'm not, these are great matches and everything. The reason I'm not watching them is because this is being recorded on Monday. And I wanted to watch the full show, so I'll watch this later on. I'll watch this full show later on. And I'll watch the full Raw episode from tonight. But. I was suggest it was suggested to me to talk only about this and not talk about the current wrestling um going on because people do that anyway um i really don't know though what people have to say about it about the current stuff um i really only have one statement to make that the current product is and that is Um, I'm hoping that they that they still have Jackson Riker under contract, and I'm hoping that if they do have him under contract, that they start to use him soon because I think I think with um current storylines, I think he. Think if they would let him use out, be himself. I think if they would just let him be himself, he could be a, a great foil to some people like a Seth Rollins or somebody like that. Um. difficult time with this. And what was, by the way, what was interesting to find out was uh, since, you know, watching Raw like this and talking about the end of the matches and stuff like that and the storylines in them what I find interesting is that um, Jerry the King Lawler said that becoming a commentator which was something by the way he said he didn't really want to do but He said that 
what he, he said that was interesting once on his podcast was that anytime he does commentary, he likes to he likes to call it like he likes to talk like um like he's a uh, uh, like this is how he would be acting or talking if he was watching from home as a fan and that is a if you're gonna if you are gonna call the action then if you are not um if your main job is not to commentate, then what better way to call the matches when you're not used to broadcast, when you're not used to being a broadcast journalist like that, or play-by-play, play, why not talk like you would as a fan? So I like that. CW came down to help Paul when he comes to blows with uh, Jerry Lawler at the commentary table. Go to commercial break. Came back. They uh, promote the finals of the European Championship Tournament. Um, which could have been could have been a short tournament with and I'm not even going to say that because I am not mistaken it might have been only one or two matches that night to close out the tournament to crown the first champion because it was in Germany which is in Europe the perfect place to do it at let's see what he says
these this is really interesting stuff. Um Undertaker goes against Farouk. Pretty sure he beat Farouk right here. So, this is very different than what you see today. Today you, um, I think you get excited to see a pay-per-view uh, pay because it's live and it's on the internet. And you don't have to worry about paying a big expense. But you don't necessarily get excited for the outcomes of the pay-per-view. Pay you just get excited that you don't have to pay as much. Now it's gotten to where it's more exciting. At least I find it is because recently the WWE has been been uh, okay. Some parts are more um, predictable, but um, for the most part, it's been. And uh, it's been easier to get surprised. So I have to give them credit for that. So um, what I like about this was um. How they're no I really have to be honest I think that they're still as good now as they were back then of having multiple storylines and them all coming together and being around the same one all being together What's great about this was um, the Road Warriors joined in on this and I remember as a kid I didn't even know the Road Warriors were in the WWF until I saw a show with my best friend the next time I had um, visited them he had shown me a video that he had recorded of it. That's I found out of us together. And so, what this was to really build up, by the way, to WrestleMania 13, of course. This was to build up to Ahmed Johnson accepting the challenge of um, Farouk. Uh, 
and they had, as the weeks went go on, as the episodes go on, that I'm gonna do the next episode of this tomorrow, and talk about, continue with the Raya episode after this, where they talk about, where you talk about how, um, actually just continue the story from this one. That's what was great, was that you didn't know what the story was, you just knew it was going to continue, and that was actually better than any than not knowing what to expect. Let me state that. That was better than expecting one thing and getting getting um, just disappointed. So it's really fun to look back at. Thank you and goodbye. Continue to look through what we've got drafted.